0: Alright, so it's going to be Acts chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 5 to 11 of Acts chapter 1 for a sermon I've entitled, Mission Possible. I changed it a little bit. Mission Possible. So it's Acts 1, 5 to 11. And here, ah, let's start with verse 6. Here's what it says. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Ju- uh, Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, Behold, two men in white clothes stood beside them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go up into heaven. From 1966 to 1973, one of the more popular television programs in America was Mission Impossible. Now the series chronicles the exploits of a small team of government agents from the IMF, the Impossible Missions Force, who are called on to engage in covert activities against dictators, evil organizations, and crime lords. If you watch the program, you might remember that the opening scene was always the same. The main character would push the button on a tape recorder and hear these words, good morning, Mr. Phelps, after which he'd get a description of the mission he was called on to perform. At the end of the man speaking, he would always say, this tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. And five seconds later, it would burn up. And Jim would go through a number of photographs to pick out the agents that he intended to use to pull off his mission. Cinnamon Carter, a top fashion model and actress. Barney Collier, a mechanical and electronics genius. Willie Armitage, a world record-holding weightlifter. And Roland Han, a noted actor, makeup artist, Escape artist, magician, and master of disguise. Now, through their meticulous planning, perfect timing, and flawless execution, week after week, the team was able to pull off their mission by the end of each episode. Of course, in real life, it's not so easy, is it? Think about the mission to establish democracy in Afghanistan and how that failed. Or to bring peace to the Middle East. We still haven't accomplished that one. For those of us old enough to remember... How about that failed attempt during the Carter administration to rescue the American hostages held in Iran? That ended in disaster and embarrassment for the United States. But you know, when a mission is accomplished, the glory and greatness of it depends on how important that mission was and how much it took to pull it off. But if that's the case, the mission accomplished by the apostles, as recorded in Acts chapter, or in the book of Acts, is a great and glorious one indeed. Indeed. Because commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel and establish churches, not only in Israel, but throughout the Roman Empire, the apostles did so facing hatred and resentment, and persecution. They were arrested and imprisoned. Some were martyred as they brought the saving message of Jesus to a perishing world. Left to themselves and their own resources, they would have had no hope of accomplishing the task that Jesus had given them. But through his empowering of the Holy Spirit... Their mission, impossible, became a mission accomplished to a large extent in a mere 30 years. Last week, we looked at how Jesus prepared the disciples for the mission by confirming their faith and giving them further instruction concerning the kingdom of God. This week, we want to consider the commission itself that Jesus gave right before he ascended back into heaven. So to do that, we're going to pray and ask God's grace. Our Father and God, I do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this, that we might see how it applies to our lives and how we can have a part in this ongoing mission of bringing the gospel to a perishing world. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think we can break down the text into three parts. First, we find the question asked. The question asked, that's going to be verse 6. Secondly, the commission given, that's 7 to 8. And finally, the ascension observed, and that's 9 to 11. The question asked, you know, I had a teacher when I was in college who, first of all, he spent the first week going over the syllabus. (laughs) But one of the things I remember about him was he said that you are not allowed to ask any questions. He told us that because he said most of the questions that are asked will be answered eventually in the lecture. And if they are not, they probably weren't worth asking in the first place. Now, I thought that was arrogant and dismissive of the students, And really dumb. I mean, I love when people ask questions when I'm teaching. It's the only time you know for certain that they're thinking and processing through the material. Now, Luke has already told us for the period of 40 days after the resurrection, before his return to heaven, Jesus had been instructing the disciples concerning the kingdom of God. And they must have been processing his teaching on this topic, for we read in verse 6, So when they came together, they were asking him, saying, Lord is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, it's interesting to read the comments by those who write on this in their commentaries. John Stott writes this. He says, Their question must have filled Jesus with dismay. Were they so lacking in perception? John Calvin wrote this. There are as many errors in their question as there are words. The verb restore shows they expected a political, territorial kingdom. The noun Israel Shows that they were expecting a national kingdom, and an adver- uh, ad- uh, the adverbial clause at this time shows they expected an immediate establishment of it. Now, many of the commentators say that the disciples' question shows that they were unable to break away from their Jewish fantasies, and they were still clinging to their misguided hope that Jesus would overthrow their Roman oppressors and establish the kingdom of, uh, of God on earth, there from Jerusalem, to rule over the nations. Now, they expected a Jewish kingdom to replace the Roman Empire. I mean, didn't they understand what Jesus meant when he said, my kingdom is not of this world? I mean, after 40 days of teaching about the kingdom of God by Jesus, how could they still hold the mistaken view that the kingdom of God is some kind of geopolitical reality with Israel at its center? I mean, where did they get such notions? Well, honestly, they got them from the Old Testament, where those things are taught. Take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 7, starting with verse 13. This is the vision that Daniel has where he sees one called the Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, to receive a kingdom from him. Look what he says in verse 7, or verse 13 of chapter 7. Daniel says this, I kept looking into the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now go down to verse 23. Then he said, the fourth beast, this is the fourth of these world empires, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns... Out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will attend to make alterations in the times and in the laws, and they will be given into his hand for time, time and a half of times. That's three and a half years. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away and annihilated forever. Then the sovereignties and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. Now notice here that the establishment of the kingdom of God only comes after the fourth beast, the Antichrist, and his kingdom is destroyed. Folks, the Bible teaches premillennialism right here. But where did the disciples get the idea that this kingdom was going to be centered on Israel. Well, listen to the words of Isaiah 9, 6-7. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no increase, uh, no end to the increase of his government and peace, and on the throne of David over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, well accomplishments. David was the king of Israel. His throne was in Jerusalem. Isaiah two, two to four says, Now it will come about in the last day that the mountain of the Lord, meaning Mount Zion, will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it, and many people will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he might teach us his ways, and that we might walk in his paths. For the law will go out from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will mediate between many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up a sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. And as to the idea that Israel will be exalted above other nations in this coming kingdom, we see that in passages like Isaiah 60, 11 to 12 where the prophet, speaking of the city of Jerusalem, writes this, Your gates will be open continually. They will not close day or night, so that men may bring into you the wealth of the nations with their kings leading the procession. For the nation and the kingdom which does not serve you will be punished, and those nations will be utterly ruined. Now, speaking of the same glorious day in the future, God promises Israel in Zephaniah 3.20, He says, at that time, I will bring you in. Even uh, at that time, I will gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore the fortunes, your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Now, all of that's what lay behind their question, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus doesn't rebuke them for the question. Rather, he redirects their focus. We see this in the next couple of verses where it's, we find the commission given. This is verses 7 to 8. says in verse 7. Jesus answers by saying, it's not for you to know the periods of times or appointed seasons by which the Father has set by his own authority. The disciples asked a good question, but it wasn't for which, the one for which they were going to receive an answer. By the way, from time to time, you get those people come along and they tell you when Jesus is going to return. Oh, he's going to come back on this and that day. Harold Camping, a number of years ago, Christian radio broadcaster and evangelist, predicted the second coming of Jesus would happen on May 21st, 2011. When that day came and went, Camping revised his prediction, said that it happened October 21st of 2011. That day also came and went. Well, eventually Camping admitted that he was wrong and that neither he nor anyone else knew when Jesus would return. A few months later, Camping died of a stroke. Now, he should never have made that prediction. Didn't he read in the Bible what Jesus said concerning his return? But as of the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels, not the Son, but the Father alone. God has his own schedule for end-time events. We're supposed to look forward to Christ's return, but in the meantime, we have a task to perform, getting the gospel out. Jesus gives the disciples their commission in verse 8 when he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and both in in all Judea and Samaria, and as far as the remotest parts of the earth. Now, it's important that you note that before they were to go out, God had to empower them. For as it says in Zechariah, it's not by power, nor by my might, but by my spirit. That's how God accomplishes everything. This is why they were to wait for a few more days until the Holy Spirit would descend upon them before they began their ministry. You remember just a few days before this, heartsick over the thought that Jesus would leave them, he told them, it's actually to your advantage that I go away because if I don't go away, then the Holy Spirit won't become the comforter, the helper. But he says this, but when the helper comes, whom I will send in my Father's name, the Spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify about me and you also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. John 15, 26 to 27. Now notice when the apostles are testifying about Jesus, it's ultimately the Holy Spirit who's testifying through them. Do you remember when Jesus had talked to them before they sent them out earlier about the situations that would come when they were arrested and what they were to think about it? He said this, But when you, they hand you over, do not worry about how, uh, how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that very hour. For it's not you who's speaking, but it's the Spirit of your Father who's speaking in you. Matthew ten, nineteen to 21 So in their task of being his witness, Jesus lays out a road map for them to follow. They were to begin in Jerusalem, and then go on to Judea and Samaria, and then to extend their ministry beyond to reach the remotest parts of the earth. And that's just what they did. I mean, if you go through the book of Acts, you'll find that the first seven chapters tell about their ministry of the disciples around Jerusalem and Judea. But then in chapter 8, Philip goes to minister to the Samaritans and a number of them come to faith. Then starting in chapter 9, the focus turns to uh, uh, the Apostle Paul and his Gentile mission, his missionary trips. And by the time you get to the end of the book, he's all the way to the end in Rome. Paul goes on, Even past that, he planned on going to Spain. We don't know if he ever made it, but he wanted to be a pioneer missionary, always going to the place where the gospel had never been preached before. Well, by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, that period, churches had been planted around the Roman Empire. And within a few decades after that, the gospel had gone as far east as Persia, northward into Europe, southward into North Africa, and it continues on until this very day. By the way, do you know which century was the greatest century as far as the expansion of the gospel and missions. According to the church historian, Ken Scott-Latterat, the great century was the 1800s. He says this, Never before had Christianity or any religion been introduced to so many different people and cultures. Never before in a period of equal length had Christianity or any other religion penetrated for the first time such a large area as it had in the 19th century. Never before had so many hundreds of thousands contributed voluntarily of their means to assist the spread of Christianity or any other religion. The 19th century was the greatest one thus far in the history of Christianity in terms of the extent and its effect upon mankind. I mean, many of the greatest missionaries lived and served in that century. Hudson Taylor, who went to China. Adoniram Judson, a missionary to Burma. Do you know he was... He was such a brilliant man that when he was 12 years of age, he was teaching the book of Revelation to the adult Sunday school class in the original language. But I want to tell you something. He wasn't actually converted at the time. David Livingston, missionary to Africa. Amy Carmichael, she worked in India for 55 years. One of her tasks was to rescue young girls who were serving as temple prostitutes. Someone wrote to her once asking, what is missionary life like? Carmichael wrote back and said missionary life is simply a chance to die. Jesus said if a grain of wheat remains by itself it produces nothing but if it put it in the ground and it dies it produces much fruit. I mean these missionaries like the apostles who went before them suffered and many died giving their blood sweat and tears to see lost men and women boys and girls come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. C.T. Studd was a famous English cricket player who decided to become a missionary he served in China, in Africa, in India. And though he could have had an easy life, he wanted to serve in the hardest places. As he put, he said this, someone want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. The end of one of his poems says this, Only one life to, to will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life was burned out for thee. Well, these many missionaries that flamed out for Jesus, perhaps none was greater than William Carey, the missionary to India. Although he was employed as a shoe cobbler when he was younger and had no formal education, his heart always went out for the lost. He was teaching uh, geography to kids, and they said that when he did, he would go and point to different places in the map, and they said whenever he got to India, he'd get all choked up and start to cry. And he said, here in India, there's millions upon millions who are perishing without Christ. In an article of my 10th Presbyterian Church on this, they give some interesting facts about him. God had given William Carey a, a talent for language. He taught himself Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. While in India, he translated the entire Bible into five different languages, did partial translations into another five languages, and translated smaller portions of the scripture into 23 languages and dialects. He taught Bengali, Sanskrit, and Marithi to British Foreign Service administrators at Fort Williams College for 30 years. Carey's influence had a tremendous impact on the development of Indian social life. Through his reform or influence, the practice of widow burning was outlawed in 1829. It used to be that if you were a widow, or if you, or your husband died, you were a widow, they threw your body on top of his in the, uh, in the funeral pyre. He worked against the practice of female infanticide, Carrie led the campaign for humane treatment of leprosy patients who are often burned or buried alive. He started a school for the low caste and outcast, with almost 8,000 students attending. He founded a college to offer higher education. Among his other accomplishments, he pioneered lending libraries. He also wrote the first Sanskrit dictionary. By the way, his dictionary that he wrote and his translation, he, he got it almost all finished, and it burned in a fire. Years of work up in flames. You know what he did? He got out and started with A again. He became the father of printing technology in India, established the first newspaper ever printed in Oriental languages. He was the first to introduce the steam engine to in, uh, India and the first to introduce the concept of a savings and loan bank to India which allowed for economic development. Kerry became the central character in the modernization and reform of India, culminating in Indian's, Indian nationalism and eventual independence. You know, he had a number of famous quotes, probably the best known as this, Expect great things from God attempt great things for God. Another one, he said this, he said, if someone gives me credit for being a plotter, I think he describes me justly. Anything beyond that would be too much. I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. But Kerry knew that all that he accomplished was through the power of the Holy Spirit, and so he gave all the glory and honor for what he did to Jesus. He wrote this, he said, You have been speaking about William Carey. When I'm gone, say nothing about William Carey. Speak only about William Carey's Savior. Well, the apostles who went before and the missionaries who came after were used by God in mighty ways because they relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, that same Spirit dwells in the heart of every believer today. And he's there to empower us to witness for Christ as well. Now, the apostles were supposed to start where they were at in Jerusalem and move out from there. And it's the same for us the first place you're supposed to be a witness to is your family members and your friends. And yet those are the hardest people to talk to, aren't they? Past that, you're supposed to be a witness at your job, among your coworkers or your fellow students in school. Beyond that, into our community, our nation, and the world. I mean, are you looking for and taking opportunities to witness for Christ to your relatives? Or do you shy away for fear of stirring them up? I mean, if they don't hear the gospel, they won't be saved. God has placed you where you're at to be a witness to those people. You know, our church has a worldwide ministry. We have a radio ministry that reaches 70 miles every direction. Internet ministry that proclaims the gospel in nation after nation. Last month, there was one had sermon that was downloaded from Madagascar, the first time ever from that country. Well, William Carey had another Great quote when it came to missions. He said, I'll go down if you'll hold the ropes. Now, folks, most of us are never going to be missionaries, though some here might yet be called to be a missionary. But all of us can hold the ropes for the missionaries by keeping informed with what's going on in their ministries, praying for them regularly, supporting them financially. We who stay home still share in their joys and their successes. And Jesus intends to reward us on Judgment Day for the part we played in advancing the gospel around the world. John Piper was right when he said when it comes to missions, there's only three kinds of Christians. Those who go, those who send, and those who are disobedient. The commission that Jesus gave his apostles extends even to us. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you should be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, as far as the remotest parts of the earth. The task that we've been given is clear and simple. Get the gospel out to the world and make disciples For Jesus Christ, but the task is not an easy one. There's geographical barriers, language barriers, cultural barriers, religious barriers that have to be overcome to reach the perishing masses. Besides all of that, there's an enemy called Satan who hates the gospel and stirs up opposition in people to it. As we go through this book, we're going to see again and again how there was organized opposition from religious and political leaders. Other times, you'll find spontaneous uprising by the crowds, enraged by the truth they were hearing. And folks, it's the same for us today. Do your non-Christian family members and friends want to hear the gospel? Do they call you and ask you if they can come to church with you? Are they beating on the door in the back, hoping to get in? No, most are indifferent at best, and openly hostile at worst. And so they slander you behind their backs, exclude you from family gatherings. At your job, they complain to the management that you're upsetting people by talking about religion. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, for this reason the world hates you. Remember the word that I said? A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my say, namesake because they do not know the one who sent me. John fifteen, eighteen to 21. How are we supposed to respond when we're treated this way? Are we supposed to slink away with our tail between our legs? Well, I guess I'm not very good at witnessing. I probably shouldn't be talking to people if it just makes them upset. Are we supposed to throw a pity party when we're treated this way? No, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you (coughs) because of my name. (coughs) It says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, does a running back in football say I'm not going to try to run for a touchdown because when I do other uh, the players on the other team try to tackle me and they knock me down and it hurts you're going to get rejected resented slandered and at times persecuted by those you're trying to reach with the gospel when they knock you down get up and keep going I mean, think about it. The countries where the church is growing the fastest is where believers are persecuted the most. We've been given our marching orders. Let's stop complaining about our sore feet. It's a hard mission that we've been given, but it's not an impossible one because we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. Well, that brings us to our last point, though. Ascension observed. Well, it says in verse 9, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were watching, and a cloud took him up out of their sight. Now, Jesus had come from heaven to earth, and now he was going from earth back to heaven. He had accomplished his mission. It was time for him to return home. And as it says in Hebrews 1.3, when he had made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, it, it's interesting when I read the commentaries on this. It seemed that some of the commentaries, our commentators were embarrassed by this verse. I mean, Jesus lifted up from the ground into the sky past the clouds. I mean, how does that match with a naturalistic understanding of physics? Of course it doesn't match. It's not naturalistic. It's supernatural. If God's word says it happened, it happened that way. But that must have been a sight, huh? As he rises higher and higher and higher into the sky and they're craning to see him, one apostle turns to the other and says, can you still see him? No, he's gone. And as he does, there's two guys next to them who happen to be angels who say, Galilee, why do you stand here staring into the sky? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you watched him go into heaven. Now, Jesus left from the Mount of Olives, and according to Zechariah 14.4, he's going to come back to that very spot. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. Jesus will come back. We don't know when, but we know where, to where, to Jerusalem, to set up a kingdom and sit on the throne of David, over which he will rule the entire earth. Those who've trusted in Him can look forward to being resurrected with Him, given new bodies and capable of sinning, and then we're going to reign with Him forever. Now, all that lies in the future. But for the present, we have a mission to fulfill. Getting the gospel out to a perishing world. We have to get the job done before Jesus returns because Jesus said in Matthew twenty-four, fourteen, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This mission is not impossible because we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the good news to our families, our co-workers, our schoolmates, our community, and across the world as we live and die for Jesus. Now this is the message that goes out. But I have to ask you as we close up, is this the message that's come in To your heart. Have you received the gospel message? Have you believed in Christ's death as the payment for your sins? It's amazing. I've known of people who are world-renowned evangelists that I'm convinced never got saved themselves. How sad to lead other people to Christ when you yourself have never come you're not a Christian, come to Christ today. Ask him to forgive you, cleanse you of your sins, and then follow Jesus. You'll never regret it. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we do need grace and mercy. There is only one message. I remember reading an apocryphal story about Jesus when he gets back to heaven, Lord, and uh, one of the angels asked him, you know, what's your plan? Well, I left it with 12 men, fishermen, and common people to get the gospel out to the world and one of the angels said what's your plan b well there is no plan b this is all there is but this is all we need because you've given us what we need to be witnesses so i pray father god that you give us opportunities that you break down barriers for the people we're trying to reach that you'd make us zealous in prayer and pronouncing the gospel message to people with the hope that they will get saved and we know all the elect will so bless us now we ask in jesus name